at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Cheering Podcast. And today we have a very special episode because we're hosting a conversation with our partners at Accenture um, about different career paths in the data science world. To do this, we're going to be chatting with guests Henrietta Ridley and Alice Aspinall from one of our industry partners, Accenture, alongside the Cheering's Director of Tools, Practices and Systems, Kirsty Whitaker. So let's jump in first by asking everyone to tell us a little bit about your role, uh, what you do, and how did you get to where you are? So if I go to Alice's first on my screen, um, let's go to Alice first, then Kirsty, then Henrietta. Perfect. Hi, everyone. Um, so Alice Aspinall, um, I have spent the last 10 years of my career working in consultancy um, with the last kind of six or seven years of that specialised in, in data consultancy. Um, my focus is all on financial services. So I effectively help financial services clients to transform their businesses using data and AI. Um, in the last couple of years, that's really been focused in, in asset management, um, which is a super interesting industry for me because Generally, asset managers are really low maturity when it comes to using data and AI. So it means there's a lot for me, me to do, which is great. So tell us a little bit about your role, Kirsty. Hi, thank you so much for having me on the on the podcast. Um, I have been at the Turing Institute since 2017 when I was a research fellow. And I was absolutely delighted to join as program lead in 2020. And then I got a promotion this summer. So I'm now program director. Um, in 2021, in summer 2021, uh, for the Tools, Practices and Systems Research Programme. And we are a, a horizontal or a cross-cutting programme. And our purpose is to really try and enable people to do the most important parts of their research faster. So you can sort of cynically say that they're getting to the really interesting, the novel, the more exciting, um, modeling and the working with data because experts in tools practices and systems are helping them with open infrastructure so that might be open source software that they can use reuse and extend it might be data standards so making sure that data can be moved from one area to another and we also have projects that are investing in um, building trusted research environments following um, ethical and legal standards and thinking about co-creation. So thinking about making sure that we're working with the people who are going to be affected by the research um, or by the tools that we're building and who can guide the direction of those pieces of work. Yeah, last but not least, go. Henrietta. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Henrietta Ridley, I'm a data science manager at Accenture. I've been here for the last 
six and a half years. Um, so my background is I studied maths at uni, didn't really know what I wanted to do, um, but managed to find my way into Accenture. And once I was there, I initially started just on the as a grad and I tried out a variety of different roles. Um, and it was about a year in that I really found my home within within applied intelligence, which is where we do all of our data science. I'm really fortunate in that I'm cross industry, so no project's the same for me. It's always really, really interesting to get stuck into something quite different um, and try out lots of different techniques to try and use data, data science and machine learning. Um, to solve various different problems that our, that our clients are facing, um, particularly within insurance is tends to be where we have a lot of um, my experience personally, um, just looking at things like hyper personalization for our clients and also working out how they can better optimize things like their claims processes. It's really, really interesting stuff. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Thank you all so much for giving us a short introduction, short synopsis of your career. And uh, we all have different uh, backgrounds and we, the thing, um, sorry, Dan is going to edit this um, uh, out. Um, the good thing is that, no, sorry, I'm, I'm nervous because I'm in person and they can see me waffling around. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so what I wanted to say is that We are very happy to have you on the podcast, especially because we all work in the same field, which is data science, but all five of us have very different perspectives onto it. We all look at the same subject in the end, but from completely different uh, perspectives. And so we are really happy to be able to have this conversation with you guys. So I guess that we want to know is what were, for example, the different challenges that you've had, um, that you've faced in your career? Because as, as we say, you, um, Alice and Henrietta are at Accenture, so you and most of our listeners are probably academics, so you must have completely different challenges um, than we do. Um, so maybe we can start this time with Henrietta? Yeah, um, for me, I don't think I'll be alone in saying uh, that I think imposter syndrome is definitely real. Um, and I've certainly experienced that at work. Um, and I still experience that um, in a very kind of technical role, which is rapidly changing. Um, I've often felt like I don't necessarily belong or I don't know enough. And I think that's something which a lot of people face. I think the dial is shifting and I think people are being more open about talking about it, particularly in the professional environment. Um, but it's definitely something which still uh, affects me, I would say, and is, and is one of the key challenges. Can I jump in on, on this point? Because I spend a lot of time thinking about imposter syndrome. And uh, when I was doing my PhD, my PhD was in neuroscience. And I used to sort of describe doing a PhD as like, being thrown into the middle of a swimming pool, kind of flailing around, managing to get to the side, kind of having someone like lift you up just to then throw you back into the middle of the swimming pool with their criticisms and their sort of, you're never doing, you're never doing enough, you've never got it right. And it's, um, it's a huge sort of culture that, that I think pervades all of academia, it pervades anything that's, that's complex. And a lot of what I've spent a lot of the last like four or five years thinking about is I think if anyone has confidence in their answers around 
data science or artificial intelligence, it probably is demonstrating that they haven't thought about the complexities enough. So I actually think there's this real like power of sort of flipping imposter syndrome on its head. And I think this is part of some of that kind of culture change that you were talking about, Henrietta, of actually, you know, especially if you start to dig into some of the complexities around the ethics involved in, in building some of the models, deploying them, uh, what they're used for, what does it mean to make something faster? Who is, who is benefiting from that? Um, I actually think that we should all probably have quite a significant amount more of imposter syndrome um, than, is, than is kind of traditionally encouraged. Yeah, and I think I think it's really interesting to get your perspective, Kirsty, because I think when in the Accenture world, right, you, you're sort of clients pay for you to be an expert in X, Y, or Z, right? So you think you need to know everything. But I think probably the the biggest thing I've learned in the last kind of 18 months since um, I joined Accenture is there are experts in everything as part of the broader organization. And the real skill is finding out who those experts are and bringing them into the conversation, which in a company of 500,000 people is not that easy. <laughs> um, but I think coming back to Henrietta's point around kind of in a technical discipline, you sort of feel like you need to know everything, but there's always going to be people who know more than you, like you're never going to know everything. Um, so it's kind of recognizing that makes it slightly easier to overcome, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a really important thing as well for people just to talk about openly um, with each other and acknowledge. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in kind of what has motivated all of your careers. I mean, is it something that, you know, you started at one point and then you kind of ended up in a different point or have you felt like it's kind of been a very linear progression of something that you you knew you wanted to do for a long time and that's probably not the case i would say um but who wants to take that one first potentially alice or kirsty um alice do you want to go for, go for that one yeah yeah happy to so it's funny i was thinking about this this morning like how did i end up in this position in my career and it's kind of totally by accident right like I studied history and politics when I was at university. I didn't know what consultancy was or that consultancy was an actual job. Um, I kind of fell into it when I graduated, ended up being focused on financial services, which again, wasn't a particular passion of mine when I was 21. Um, but for me, what's always motivated me is kind of what does the next 12 months or 18 months look like? I've never really had a five or 10 year horizon that I've been focused on. And it really frustrates me when people ask that in interviews, because it makes people think they need to know what they want to do in 10 years. Like I've never known what I want to do in three years. Like so long as the work is interesting and I'm meeting new people and I'm being challenged and there's lots of variety. I don't think it really matters if you don't know what you want to do in 10 years. So the, what motivates me is kind of, is the next 12 months going to interest me? Is it going to excite me? Am I going to get to do some new stuff? If that's the case, then I'm happy. Yeah. And also, I mean, the landscape of work in 10 years, I mean, who knows what that's going to look like? You know, I, I did a history degree as well, and I was absolutely convinced that I was going to go and work in the museum or heritage sector. That's what I wanted to do. And then quickly realized that was actually going to be quite difficult. And, um, I, and then, yeah, I kind of have found my way to the cheering, but in a completely different role to everyone else that's at the cheering in this conversation. So it's, um, yeah, it's good to know that other people also are only thinking kind of 18 months ahead because that reassures me. <laughs> what about, um, what about you, Kirsty? What's kind of motivated your career so far? So I was, uh, in, in December, 2019, I was invited to give a talk, um, 
in uh, in Heidelberg in Germany uh, as part of their inspirational seminar series. And I feel a little bit the same way about inspirational seminars as I do about polite notices that like, I'll be the judge of whether it's inspirational or not. Um, and it was quite, a, I was sort of like, oh, wow, shoot, I got to be inspirational. And I actually gave a talk that I, I ended up really loving where I went forward in my career and I sort of linked everything up and I made it sound like I had this like great coherent plan of going from a undergrad in physics to a master's in medical physics in Vancouver in Canada and then a PhD in neuroscience, looking at child brain development, postdoc in, um, in Cambridge in the UK, um, looking at in the Department of Psychiatry, looking at the emergence of mental health conditions, and then coming to the Turing Institute, thinking about kind of the importance of open science, open research, reproducibility, and sort of changing the culture. And I told this story and I was like, gosh, I'm, I'm amazing. It's a bit like when you when you read your own CV and you're like, good, good Lord, I've, I've done a lot of things. But then I rewound the talk and I actually told the sort of real story where, you know, I went to I went to Canada because I wanted to go skiing a lot. And I did go skiing a lot. I got really quite good at skiing when I was lived near Whistler Mountain. That's I went a perfectly to, valid uh, reason great. to just move extreme. Well, I'm also very I'm quite a sort of lazy person. So I figured that doing a master's would be and I got a scholarship to do the masters would be easier than working in a bar or in a restaurant while also trying to ski so that that worked out great for me I went to California because I wanted to live somewhere else on the west I wanted to live in one more place before I lived forever in Vancouver basically and I, I went to California and did my my PhD there and then I um I also had a had a Fulbright scholarship to go to California and the US government requires, um, if you've had your home government pay for your travel, um, your study abroad, you have to come back to the to your home country. So for me, that's the UK. And I, uh, I used to refer to my first two years in Cambridge as my community service, my coming back to the country to, uh, to bring back the learnings that I that I had from my international um, exchange programme. And then, you know, then actually, to be perfectly honest, then I got did get somewhat serious about my about my career. And that was when sort of digging into seeing all of the problems in academia um, and how how many people are driven out of academia because of the sort of um, the sort of serendipity that's required and the, the luck that's required to get positive, successful P less than 0.05 results um, that are new and people that happen to find it people happen to find it exciting uh, I think that's the that's sort of where I have ended up so I would I would love to spend my time doing network analysis on structural and functional brain networks that was something that I did in my PhD and I did my postdoc and I I love the maths behind it I love the sort of the theory they're linking up with the biology but there are really smart people who are also doing that and I think there need to be more smart people. There are great people working in open infrastructure, but I think we need to kind of really heavily invest in fixing those problems so that we can solve the really important problems. So my, my dream, my hope is that we will, um, everyone will work reproducibly. Everyone will share their data in a sort of secure and ethical way, unless they can make it open, in which case I hope they make it open. They will document things. They will be rewarded in their careers for supporting and helping others to do innovative work. And then we can all go back to doing whatever um, brain visualizations we particularly enjoy.
Um, and what about you, Henrietta? Has there been a particular motivation in your career or is it something that's kind of not happened? I don't think anyone's career just happens, but... Um... Yeah, no, listening to Kirsty, mine certainly won't be nearly as detailed as that. I have to be honest. Um, but mine definitely, I think it's being able to continually learn. That's something which has always motivated me. Um, and it's what's kept me at Accenture for such a long time. Every day I go to work, it's different. I learn something new. Um, I have a strong desire for developing myself, both personally and professionally. And I think Accenture is the place for me that's just given me that. Um, and data science, because it's such a changing environment, it never gets boring. I'm never doing the same thing. There's always something new to learn, something new to look up. Um, or to try and understand how we might apply a new technique to a different business challenge. So it always feels like you're kind of at the forefront of change. And that's something that's something that I've loved. And I think I will continue to love until until maybe that starts declining. But I'm hoping it won't. That's my that's my goal. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my motivation. <laughs> I have a bit of a question because Kirsty brought up how academics um, develop things for, um, you know, advanced science and, you know, the greater good, etc. But there's not a lot of um, community sometimes effort to to have well documented. I'm, I'm speaking this, but, you know, I, I do that. Unfortunately, if anyone saw my code, just don't. It's, <laughs> it's better that way. So my question is, how is, how, because in Accenture, you obviously have clients, as you've mentioned, Alice, that, that pay and you do a work uh, you have to do the work for them so I guess other than things other than the specifically for um, a certain client type of work how do you do you find that there is an open um, community and you can learn with each other and actually help each other evolve uh, across the company yeah definitely and I think one of the one of the things about that I found so interesting is is the global nature of it um so working for a company like Accenture you have people in all countries of the world pretty much um and we have you know innovation centers in lots of different geographies we have different capabilities that you know their sole existence is to develop AI and data solutions for different clients different industries different business problems and Whilst my day-to-day -day role is primarily solving problems specific for clients, there's lots of other people in Accenture whose day-to-day -day role is building solutions that we can then take to clients and being at the forefront of the latest data capabilities, data technologies, being able to show that we are thought leaders in that space. Um, and it means that from a career perspective, people who are part of Accenture get the opportunity to do a bit of both. And I think that's what motivates a lot of people. You don't have to just be someone who goes out every day and does what a client tells you to do. You can also be someone who comes up with new ideas, who innovates, who uses um, data and AI in their kind of day-to-day -day job to build those solutions that, that we market to clients and market in the industry as well. Can I ask a question of um, Henrietta and Alice? What do you think is the, um, the biggest sort of misconception about working at an organization like Accenture? Henrietta, do you want to take that one first? You've been here longer than me, so. Um, it's a really good question. It's a really hard question as well, actually. Um, 
I think one of the things which I guess surprised me about working at Accenture um, was the ability to still work on really interesting and innovative things and to work on them in a team environment. That's something which I've really loved. And actually, I guess it's being able to work on a specific problem at a specific company and then be able to take that, change your whole team, change your client, change everything, but actually be able to apply the same techniques to something totally new is really, really interesting. And it's one of the things which I've really loved. I don't I wouldn't say it's necessarily a misconception um, that we have at Accenture. Um, that we wouldn't do that. I think that's kind of the the aim of consulting really is to uh, to be able to kind of lift and shift and, and share knowledge across them. I guess I didn't realise it would be um, quite so dependent on having that cross-functional team set up and actually being able to draw on industry experts with data science experts and having that kind of team structure that really, um, for me anyway, that certainly makes the difference. And being able to be quite creative as well in the way which we, in the way in which we solve problems. I think data science is kind of it's quite geeky. I think it's really fun, but not everybody does. Um, but essentially, using different techniques like design thinking to try and actually uh, collaborate across a whole team and actually come up with a new solution in a really um, fun and energetic way um, is something that, again, that also surprised me um, about work. I, I didn't think it would always be fun, and it is, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, I think one thing I'd add to that, I think Accenture gets uh, one of the misconceptions that I'm, I guess, acutely aware of, having been in the organisation for 18 months and being brought into Accenture through an acquisition rather than kind of applying for a role at the organisation on a personal level, I think Accenture gets this misconception of being a company of 500,000 robots who just kind of operate and do as they're told and we're a bit of an army of consultants. Um, but actually, sort of what Henrietta said about the energy and the, the fun nature of working here, I've definitely seen that a lot in the last 18 months, which considering we've all been remote for pretty much that whole time is is a testament to the organisation and, and the way that it operates. Um and also there's things about Accenture that like I didn't even know, like we're the biggest digital agency in the world because we've acquired so many different interactive companies. Like just, I think the scale of it kind of blows your mind when you first get into it. But once you realize you don't need to understand every single different corner of it, your life gets a lot easier. So you mentioned just then, Alice, that um, you were an acquisition to Accenture. So has your, could you tell us a bit about that kind of um, how has your role changed before and after you kind of moved to Accenture? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess February 2020, um, I worked for a company called Madano. Uh, we're a specialist financial services data consultancy. We're about 100 people um, based um, in London and, and in Edinburgh, which is actually where I live. Um, and we were acquired by Accenture in, in March 2020. Um, it wasn't something I sort of saw coming, to be totally honest. And an acquisition journey is has its challenges. Um, a lot of people who wanted to work in a startup found it difficult to transition to no longer being in a startup environment. And that can be a difficult journey for a business of our size to go through. Um, my day-to-day -day role 
from Modano into Modano part of Accenture, the biggest change is just the scale. I get to talk to so many more clients than I did previously that I just wouldn't have had the opportunity to speak to if we stayed as a standalone business. Most of our effort as Modano was trying to get a first meeting with different clients. Now we're part of Accenture. You have the ability to talk to C-suite at different financial organizations with, with just a sort of hello, introduce yourself and you're sort of in the door. So my role has changed because I'm just speaking to so many more clients about so many different things that I didn't get to do previously. So there's a lot of opportunity that's come with it. Um, and we're in a, we're in a growth period again as a business, which is great for us. So, um, as I say, I think the opportunity at Accenture is just kind of never ending, really. It's just about hours in the day to make the most of it. That's, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing. Um, but we also. Before we go to the next question, I just want to say, Henrietta, you said that data science is cool. I think most of our listeners will agree. If they don't, they're probably not listening to the correct podcast, and I apologize. Uh, but speaking of career changes, Kirsty, you mentioned that you were program lead and now you're pro program director. So how has your job changed? What has changed with this small difference? in the name but big difference <laughs> it's a big difference in the pay which is uh, which is really nice so the so actually very little has changed between program lead and program director and uh, the the uh, leadership at the Turing were very clear that the that basically you know the pathway was to program director if I could build the program so um, you can think about the sort of program lead role as being a space to say right we're investing we're investing in this program we think that a program looking at um open infrastructure looking at data standards looking at um open source software investing in how how we connect um different projects and different programs together how we sort of do that knowledge transfer um that that henrietta and alice were saying was is so important and and it's important absolutely everywhere um that's the, that was the original investment. And then, you know, it was up to me as program lead to build, to build and grow the program. And, uh, you know, the, essentially my promotion is this is a, an indicator that we were growing it very well. Um, one of the, we've had a couple of sort of really fabulous successes. Uh, one is that we have won a 3 million pound grant to be a research support facility for a, a 25 million pound investment in AI for multiple long-term conditions. Now, if anyone who works in, um, in health data research, most the sort of the clinical name for multiple people who live with multiple long-term conditions is multimorbidity. So people who are listening might recognize the name multimorbidity. Um, but when you listen to people who are affected, by multiple long-term conditions. Uh, they don't really like referring to themselves as multiply morbid. It sounds like you're gonna die multiple times over. And you know, some of this is, is chronic and, and quite sort of difficult, but maybe it's not the same as, as dying multiple times over. And so the preferred term is multiple long-term conditions. So that's why we use it. And it's the AIM investment. So AI for multiple long-term conditions. And what that money is going to be invested, it's from the um, Department for Health and Social Care. So it's government investment uh, through the uh, National Institute for Health Research. And there's going to be six, probably, there might be seven, uh, research teams around the country who will be looking at um, using 
complex modeling with lots of data from lots of different data sources to answer questions about trying to understand the complexities of people who live with multiple um, long-term conditions, as I, as I keep saying. And what's really important about this work is that when you come to the health service, you are often treated by the first thing that you come to the health service with. So if you have um, heart disease, but you also have depression, one of those things will be treated and in many cases, not the other. Um, if you have uh, a diagnosis of, as one of our collaborators has, uh, a diagnosis of epilepsy and a diagnosis of autism, there's very little training in the um, health service to support the intersection of having a physical, a physical disability and something that affects your uh, mental health or your neurodiversity. And so what we're helping to do, what the, the AIM investment is looking at is sort of trying to understand the complexity of all of those different combinations and trying to also understand how they intersect and interact with socioeconomic status as well. So why are people particularly at risk? And what I'm so proud of is that our, our tools, practices and systems program in collaboration with the health program at the Turing, we're going to be supporting those researchers. So that means we're going to be helping them with data standards. We're going to be helping them with their trusted research environments, linking up the patients and the members of the public who are advising them so that we don't have just those conversations happening in silos. We actually sort of open up those conversations and try and make them much broader. And we're going to be focusing very strongly on a legacy of the investment, because although 25 million sounds like an awful lot of money, it's going to disappear in just a few years. And we're definitely not going to solve any of those complex uh, challenges in health data research. And so making sure that everyone is pushing in the same direction and that everyone is being really sort of efficient in the way in which they spend their money and they spend their time is one of our biggest our biggest goals. So we've had that project that's good. The, we're going to be recruiting for that in the next couple of months. Um, and we also have a new role that we're starting through the AI for Science and Government 40 million pound investment that's been managed through the Turing Institute for the last few years. And we've got a few projects inside of that that I'm really, really excited about. But one I want to kind of emphasize, because I think it really fits with a lot of what we're talking about here, are our research application managers. So these are our RAMs. And the RAMs are sort of taking the concept of a product manager from a tech firm and applying them to research outputs. So one of the greatest sort of, I think, weaknesses or failures of academic research for actually translating to make a difference in the real world is we tend to stop at the paper. So we write something, we do some analyses, people work really, really hard on it. They care, they're very, very careful with all of their analyses. It gets peer reviewed, it gets published, people read it. And that's kind of it. That's sort of the end. And what we want to do is make sure that the people who built uh, the software toolbox, who curated the data, who built the specific model, who tuned the model to think about what parameters needed to go in there, who thought about the um, ethical frameworks that needed to be considered before you could deploy a piece of work like this, uh, that thought about the training materials to allow others to be able to use them. We want to make sure that those are not just openly licensed, which means they are technically usable or they could be reused, but that they are actually used and that they are actually reused. And that means making sure that people, for example, in government uh, have heard about them and know that they exist. 
and can also have a look at things like their documentation, can understand it and can install the tools going forward. So we've got a lot of um, a lot of conversations that we're going to be having in the next sort of 18 months, making sure that when we finish this five year investment, we're not just sort of leaving some really, really cool pieces of work on the shelf and that we're actually making sure that they, again, it's that legacy kind of um, philosophy of, of making sure that they exist and that they can be continued and extended going forward. Sounds like you have a lot of, um, yeah, very exciting projects coming across. It sounds like you're going to be very busy as well. <laughs> that, that's actually, so that's actually maybe a better answer to, to the question of how is my, how is my role changed? <laughs> We're hiring like, like monsters. We, we're bringing in amazing people all the time. And so it actually really resonates with Alice's experience of sort of going from a startup to a, to a big multinational corporation. And what is a great um, honor and, and a, a sort of real excitement for me is promoting people up to be able to lead teams themselves. So I, I just did my objectives for, for this year and one of my objectives is to build resilience into our um, line management structure. So what a dream to have it be not everyone reporting up to me and have them reporting in it to other really talented, really excellent um, members of the tools, practices and systems research team. We've just had a we've got a volunteer leadership team that are starting. We have our first meeting, I think, next next week. Um, and they're going to be helping me to draft and, and design our strategy. And then we also have some um, senior researchers coming into posts and they'll be leading small teams of RAMs, as I was talking about, and also community managers, um, making sure that we're sort of connecting up projects across the jury. Yeah, lots of progression for the programme, but also it's so nice to see people grow with the programme, particularly people that potentially you've worked with for a while. That's such a nice part of the role, I imagine. Um, so they're kind of kind of leads me on to my question towards Henrietta so you mentioned you've been at Accenture for six and a half years so what's it like kind of you know progressing your career through something like Accenture kind of is there is it very is it structured in the way that you progress or is it kind of you there's lots of opportunity to try different things kind of how, how does it work for you I suppose I'm interested in yeah that's a really good question um I think particularly when I joined um I think someone said earlier as well I didn't really know what Accenture did if I'm honest, I didn't really know what consulting was. I was very much, I'd finished uni. I was looking for kind of my first job and Accenture seemed like a good place to apply. And I, and I guess I was just really fortunate that whilst I was in my first kind of two years as an analyst, I had that flexibility to change and to move and to try out lots of different things. And I think that's part of the idea of it. In your first kind of couple of years, you really get that opportunity to be on lots of shorter projects, looking to do lots of different things at lots of different places. And I think whilst I was there, I kind of I had an idea. I had a maths background that actually data science was something that I was most interested in. Um, I think networking is is very key, particularly in such a big organisation being able to just go and have a chat with people in different parts of the business, that really helps you understand, I guess, the scale of what's out there um, so that you can, because I think in such a huge organisation, you can make your career your own. 
no one is going to have the same journey through the company um, just because it is so vast and there is always scope to change to move to do slightly different things depending on what interests you the most um, I think that's what I've loved about it and what has kept me there for such a long time um, I would say yeah there is no really structured route you have the ability to keep progressing and I guess that's the other thing that we see quite a lot in um, in our clients and in industry it's a much more linear process but because the company is such huge scale, actually your ability to move up the levels um, and to gain more responsibility is at your own discretion rather than relying on somebody above you to move into a different position so that there is then a gap. So that's something else which it very much uh, gives you that flexibility to keep moving um, and to accelerate as quickly or kind of whatever pace is actually natural for you. Um, so yeah, that's something I found. I have found actually, as I've kind of moved more into the manager style role, you do become slightly less hands-on than you were initially. Um, but again, that's something which, depending on what you prefer, you can really shape the roles and the projects that you're on to suit your skill set. Um, and you, it just takes a bit of manoeuvring. But it works. It works. <laughs> it's so interesting to see all of your so di such different career paths that you've had. Um, as an early career person, it's quite interesting that I I don't have to follow you know a mold and be exactly. Uh, but I've got, now I want to ask something uh, a little bit you know um, spicier. Let's put it that way, because what is it that you would change about? Um, your industry and what you do and how how would you what is it that you would prefer to see um as you were growing your career and right now what would you change if you could you know let's assume we have all the power and uh can change anything when I first started my career um so I used to work at, at EY when I first started my career and it was very much a a partnership model and you could very clearly see who the leaders were in the business and unless you aspired to be like one of them it was very difficult to see what your career path was going to be through that organization. I think what I would have liked to see kind of when I first started my career was much more diversity in terms of not only different types of people, different backgrounds, different genders, different ethnicities but also different ways of thinking. At that time, it seemed like if you didn't think like them, you weren't going to make it. And I found that really difficult. And I can see that changing now. And I think that's really great for people who come into, into our line of work now that they are starting to see that more diverse ways of thinking, ways of leading, ways of building teams, ways of motivating people. And I think that's really critical, but there's a lot of, there's a lot more work for us to do. And, and even just being part of this conversation, it's, it's so nice to hear perspectives from, from other people in the industry who will be building that and will be changing what it looks like in the years to come. Um, Henrietta, would you like to go ahead and um, and tell us what is it that you would like to change, um, either going forward or that you would have wanted to be changed as you were going through your career? Um, yeah, no, it's a very good question. I think Alice's answer was brilliant and definitely diversity and particularly diversity of thought is something 
um, which is really, really important. I think one of the other things which I've noticed, um, and we are starting to see some of that change um, at the moment, is a, we're a consultancy. We live by PowerPoint slides and actually moving slightly away from just doing a presentation to try and tell a story and to actually excite our clients using prototypes and being able to actually build something and take that and showcase the art of the possible more so than just writing it on a slide. I think that's one of the things which I'm pleased is changing slightly. It's one of the things I didn't realize um, I could spend so many hours on PowerPoint slides, but that's one part of my job that I definitely, my day certainly goes quicker um, when I'm coding rather than when I'm PowerPointing. Um, but that definitely would be uh, the thing which I'm, I'm excited to see change as we, as we go forwards. How about you, Kirsty? What is your view? Um, what would you change? So my whole sort of career basically has been built around what I want to change in, uh, in data science and AI. So there's, I have many, I have a great collection of soapboxes that I like to stand on and kind of uh, rant about the things that should be different. I think for this one, the one that I'll pick is um, a, an incentive culture around who we give money to, who we give credit to, who we give prizes to, um, that is about having about being different to your peers, being better than your peers. And that means that we incentivize people to behave very strongly to take what they can from others. But there is very, very little incentive to give anything back because the people that you would educate, if you made it very clear how you were doing this one particular great technique, um, there's one that will win a Nobel Prize sometime soon called optogenetics. And it's this spectacular neuroscience technique um, where they've taken ion channels uh, from different animals that respond to light and they put them inside of, of other animals, inside of rats and mice, for example. Um, and it means that you can drive the neuron. So you can actually sort of make sure that you know exactly when that neuron is sending a signal. And that is a spectacular, I mean, that's just an amazing, amazing sort of uh, tool inside of a neuroscientist's uh, research kit. It means you can do causal research. You can really try and understand sort of the nuances of, of which parts of the brain or the central nervous system are connecting to each other. Um, but that technique, if you look at papers that have that technique, the vast majority of them have the one researcher who created the technique, um, he, is a, he is an author on basically every single one of those. And I, I think that's perfectly reasonable for him because that's how you succeed in academia right now. And what I would love to see is a change where giving that knowledge away, making it so that it was easy for people at other labs to be able to not only understand the technique, but actually be able to do it. Like there's obviously huge, huge amounts of skills and expertise in being able to actually kind of undertake the procedure. And I'm talking about quite a sort of, you know, physical act inside of a lab that you're doing, but it's the same with any type of um, modeling work, any type of sort of understanding of particular techniques. 
I would love for people to be lifted up and celebrated because they gave away that knowledge and they empowered others to be able to do the work rather than they were sort of deified and glorified for being the best in the field um, at doing that type of work. And I think the open source ecosystem has tons and tons of heroes um, who are doing exactly that. And one of the greatest sort of challenges with trying to make that change in the world is that as you give away power, people don't know. <laughs> people don't know that you were the person doing that. You were the enabler. You were the person that was um, really making others look, look good. Because if you are a successful educator, community manager, mentor, support, the feeling that others around you have is that they are doing a great job. <laughs> and so what I want to do is spend, a, I spend a lot of my time and I want others to spend all of their time thinking about how we celebrate those people who are quietly connecting people, supporting them, mentoring them, allowing them to reach such great heights and then make sure we, make sure we give them um, not necessarily prizes. I don't think we need to give away great big prizes, but I think we want to give away um, job stability. I think if we could make sure that those folks knew that they were going to be employed beyond the end of their two or three year long contract, what a, what a completely different world we would live in. Yeah, because I was going to say in academia, if you want to advance, you have to have your papers and it's extremely competitive and you find yourself applying with your the people that you work with for the same jobs and the same positions. Um, and that must be, and, and that's really stressful. So that would be a really good change um, that, to have. Is there anything else we would like to ask, Joe? So I, I had a final quick fire question. So if you could all, if you all had one piece of advice to someone that's, you know, thinking of starting in your field or your sector, you know, what, you know, what would you say to them as someone that's kind of, you know, new, <laughs> basically? Um, so potentially let's start with Henrietta, Kirsty, and Alice and quick fire kind of advice. Yeah, I think from me, it would be certainly do it. Um, you'll be challenged. You'll learn new things. Um, when you come up against a problem, uh, be prepared to think about it all day long because um, it really just gets under your skin. Um, but yeah, enjoy it would be my key. Great. Um, Kirsty, what would your advice be? One is um, if you're trying to do something that no one has done before, your leaders cannot lead you. And so you've got a huge catch 22 <laughs> of coming into the space and you're going to have to learn something. You need to learn everything, but you also need to know when they are giving you the advice that have got them to where they are and not what's going to get you to where you need to be, which is like that next barrier through. And related to that, I would say the other piece of advice is build very, very strong connections with your peers. We often get a lot of sort of um, recommendations around mental, around uh, networking with more senior people. And that's obviously great. You want to make sure that they know who you are, they know about your work, that they think of you when they have jobs or, or fellowship opportunities coming up. But actually, your peers are going to be the influencers when you are an influencer. And so building that support network, building a, a space for you to brainstorm and, and think about questions in ways that have not been considered before, it's a, it stands you in really, really good stead. Uh, I think mine would be, especially at the early stages of your career, try everything. Even if you find out you hate it, at least you're eliminating things from what you might want to do in the future. Um, so yeah, I'd just say 
every opportunity that comes your way, just grab it with both hands and, and try a bit of everything. Seeking perfection from your first job is is never quite how it works. Um, so just get get as much variety as you can and figure out what it is you don't want to do. And that'll help you figure out what it is you do want to do. I think that's, I give that advice to people all the time. I think it's a really, really good piece of advice. And also, you know, there's a lot of pressure on, you know, to actually figure out what you want to do. You also, it's okay if you don't, you might want to change what you do every few years and that's also fine. <laughs> so um, great, all very, very good pieces of advice. So I think, I think that's probably all we've got time for, isn't it now, B? Um, but I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone for joining us today and providing us with such insightful um, discussion around things that, you know, need to be talked about more. Um, and, for, yeah, and for your honesty as well, because it's sometimes hard to vocalise or put into words things about your career. Um, so thank you. And I hope everyone at home has enjoyed listening to this discussion. Um, just one final thing before we forget if people want to get into contact with you do you have like any social media any contact information that you want to put in this is the plug spot i am very happy linkedin is my uh, network of choice and it's just henrietta ridley um, but thank you as well for having us yeah mine's the same linkedin i think it's just alice aspinall um but yeah i really enjoyed the conversation it was good thank you this is such a hilarious difference between um industry and academia because i although i am on linkedin i never check it and i have a note that says please don't contact me through here because i never check it but i am very active on twitter and i'm very very keen to have people um at me at kirsty underscore j um and uh, yeah Thanks, everyone. Thanks again. It's just a brilliant, brilliant way to spend a morning chatting with you all. Thank you so much, everyone. If you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk. The Cheering Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstry, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jamin Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jaminsun.bandcamp.com.